Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about counter proof texts. And what I mean by counter proof texts are those proof texts in the Bible which you could present to people who are affiliated with negative theology and force them to use reading comprehension to understand the verse. And once I start getting into these verses, you're going to kind of understand what I'm doing with these verses. These verses are verses that if these verses were about God, these people would take this verse in some sort of metaphysical sense, in some sort of uh, negative theology sense or classical theology sense. But these verses are not about God, which forces them to try to understand it using reading comprehension rather than metaphysics. All right, let's start at the beginning. Genesis 11. And uh, just think in your own head when I say this phrase, what does it mean to you? Now, nothing that God proposes will be withheld from him. You might think automatically this is about uh, either God's power, and, and you'd be right, or you would think about sovereignty. Like the Calvinists might claim that this is a verse that shows that nothing can thwart God's will, and whatever God's will is, is supreme. But here's the kicker. Here's the catch. Genesis 11.6 is not about God. I kind of changed the words up a little bit. Here's what it actually says. And this is God speaking. And the Lord said, and this is Yahweh here, it's the Lord. Indeed, the people are one and they have one language. And this is what they began to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So let's think about that a little bit. God is talking about man saying that nothing that man proposes to do will be withheld from them. Is God saying that mankind can just fly or do supernatural acts or perform miracles? No, this is hyperbolic. It's a generality. This is how people talk about people who are just generally capable or more than capable of accomplishing things. There's no need to interject metaphysics. No, man is not omnipotent. Man is not a creature who can uh, do anything with his mind instantly. This is just normal talking about generally capable people. It's hyperbolic. And the Bible, since Genesis, uses normal figures of speech, normal idioms, normal ways of describing things. So now let's compare these statements that God makes about man to statements that God makes about himself. Take, for example, Isaiah 48.3. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Now, is God declaring that he does everything, like in a Calvinist sense, that uh, he makes me lift up my hand and move my mouth and uh, click my tongue, and he's just controlling everything? Or, or alternatively, is God saying, I've done these powerful things, and they've come true, and that's generally true, that what I say is what I'm going to do, and it's not like, it's not like nothing can stop him ever. Like, for example, if... God declares against a nation, saying, I am going to destroy this nation, and then they repent. Sometimes God will say, well, I repent of the destruction that I thought I was going to do to them. And this isn't necessarily like overcoming God and, and demeaning his power. 
This is just common sense exceptions to general rules that God is going to do what he declares he's going to do. It's common sense that if those people repent and God can show mercy, he's not a slave to his words. It's not like it's a failed prophecy. It's not like if I'm going to McDonald's with my kids, I say to them, I'm bringing you to McDonald's. Let's go to the McDonald's. They all jump in the car and then they all start fighting. And I say, well, okay, never mind. Um, scratch that. We're turning around. We're going home. No more McDonald's for any of you guys. It's not a failed prophecy. I'm not a liar. It's a change in events and it's common sense. So here's the question in Calvinists. Is man omnipotent? Is it true when God speaks? This is Yahweh speaking. He says nothing that they propose to do can be withheld from them. I mean, what's a Calvinist going to do? How are they going to respond? They can't say that man is omnipotent. They have to understand. They have to admit that sometimes in the Bible, there are strong generalities. There are hyperboles used to describe a situation. Normal reading comprehension allows us to understand that these types of statements are not absolutes. In fact, that's our default reading. Now let's talk really quick about an omniscience proof text used by Calvinists. Psalms 147.5 Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. And they say, oh, infinite. It means no bounds. That's, that's the most greatest thing that we could even conceive of. It's not even conceptual. It extends everywhere and always. And how dare you try to limit it by saying God does not know the future. They try to impose on this text their conceptions of what infinity is. And in our previous podcast, we talked about Spurgeon and his take on what infinity means. And he's all wrapped up in these metaphysics about infinities. And there's infinities with no bounds, and that's who God is, and nothing can change God, and, and all sorts of this nonsense. But that's not what this verse is talking about. That's not how these words are being used and let's turn now back to Genesis, back to Genesis. We'll talk about what Joseph did. Remember, Joseph went to Egypt, and there's going to be a famine. And so what does Joseph do? He gets a divine message from God. And it's to store up grain. It's to store up the grain. So in Genesis 41, 49, it says, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. For it cannot be measured. It cannot be measured. And guess what? You, you don't know it from the text because it's worded differently. It, when it's talking about God, the Calvinist translators are going to say, oh, it's infinite. It's infinite. But uh, when it's talking about the amount of corn or grain that Joseph stores, it's, it can't be measured. You know, they're the same Hebrew words. It's the same Hebrew concept. When God tells Abraham that your descendants are going to be as countless as the stars, you know, he's not saying that, I don't know how many stars there are. Let's pretend there's like 3 billion stars. I don't know. I don't know anything about numbers of stars. But let's pretend that's true. He's not saying that you're going to have 3 billion kids. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you're going to have so many that you can't count. And guess what? That, that has come true. There are so many Jews that you really can't count them all. Hitler killed millions, and they're still around in the millions. God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled, even though his kids don't number in the billions. That's not what it's about. It's about a number so large that it's 
incredibly hard to, or you're unable to count it. And that is what the Psalms verse is talking about, that we can't understand God's understanding. It's not about his knowledge either. It's just about his processing, what he knows, how he calculates, how he decides things. That is limitless. And limitless in the sense that we can't even begin to think that we're going to be comparing to it. What it doesn't mean is this Platonistic notion of infinite where it's boundless and God has to be the infinite being. That's not what it's talking about. The same words are used in Genesis 41. Did Joseph round up an infinite amount of corn? Of course not. Of course Joseph did not round up an infinite amount of corn. Instead, it's hyperbolic speech that we see throughout the Bible. Now we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes. And now the listener should try to think in their mind, Is God speaking or is this a man speaking? I have seen all the works that are under the sun, and indeed it is all vanity and gasping for the wind. Now if the reader is, uh, or the listener, if the listener is familiar with Ecclesiastes, they're going to know that this is not God speaking. This is a man, the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's not saying in this where he says, I have seen all the works that are under the sun. He's not claiming omniscience. He's not claiming to know everything, everywhere, at all points of time. He's saying he has a general knowledge of how people act and how people are. He's speaking hyperbolically. But if this was God who spoke these words, if this was God speaking, this text would be included in those lists of verses, you know, people say, oh, all these verses, this medley of verses, these are all our proof texts to show that God knows everything. This verse would be included in that series of proof texts. And we know that. We could just read some of these proof texts, and they sound very similar. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalms 33.13, from the heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all of mankind. They're very similar verses, very similar verses to Ecclesiastes. And these verses are often used for omniscience proof texts. And keep in mind, the omniscience that they advocate from these texts is not the normal omniscience that we read in the text, where God's just watching people in general and seeing what they do and keeping an eye on the wicked and the righteous. The omniscience that they say they can pull out of these texts is God is watching everything. If there's a deserted island with some rocks and the wind is moving the rocks, God is tracking the movement of those rocks. Even though there's no people there, there might not be any animals there, there might not be of anything of significance on that deserted island. And they say that these verses, these omniscience proof texts, prove that God watches those events. This is just wild speculation on their parts. So no, the writer of Ecclesiastes is not omniscient. People might object, well, that's just a man talking, and it's not about God, it's not God talking. And so maybe when God talks or people talk about God, they're talking in a different way. But let's listen to this and try to think who is talking in this verse. Ezekiel 28.3 Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. Who is talking and who's being talked to? Who is the verse about and who is saying it? 
God is actually talking to an unnamed prince of Tyr. God is talking to a human. And what is God saying to him? He's using royal language. He says, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. Is this a claim that God's making that the prince of Tyr is omniscient? It is not. Is this a claim that God is making that the prince of Tyr can read hearts? He could understand secret hidden knowledge through some sort of clairvoyance or some sort of mind reading. It's not what that's about at all. Instead, instead what's happening is the Prince of Tyr is very powerful. And he has messengers, he has spies, he's able to collect and gather and understand things. And he has the competence in order to process the knowledge that he gathers through these informants. And because of this, because of this, God is able to say to them, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. And within this text, there's a lot of this glorification language that God is just lavishing on this king, talking him up, talking about how great he is and how good he is. And we got another proof text coming up, another counter proof text, just because this language is so rich. It's this royal language. So keep that in mind, though. The Prince of Tyr, nothing can be withheld from him. There's no secret that can be hidden from him. Let's listen to this. This is from a, one of those medleys of omniscience proof texts. Psalms 44, 21. Would God not find out, for he knows the secrets of the heart. And we've talked plenty of times about Calvinists, and they talk about uh, Bruce Ware, for example, says, God, can't he know? Can't he see? Can't he read hearts? Well, how does God test hearts? How does God test David to know his heart? How, does, how is it that God knows the secrets of the heart? Is he tests them. And in the same way, this Prince of Tyr is testing and extracting secrets that people are trying to keep from him. It's not that he's a mind reader. The Prince of Tyr can't see into the hearts. And to take these other proof texts, these proof texts about God seeing into the heart after testing people to figure out what's in their heart, and to claim instead those verses are about God's just innate knowledge of how people's hearts operate and and how they're going to act in all future situations. That's preposterous. It's just, it's not warranted by the text, which is usually in the context of God actually doing something to find out. Even the thing that we just wrote. Would God not find out? God doesn't already know because God doesn't know the future. God would have to find it out. For he knows the secrets of the heart. And how does he? Is it in the same way or is it a different way? Than the Prince of Tyr. Calvinists have to admit that the Prince of Tyr is not omniscient. He does not have clairvoyance. He can't see into people's hearts. Instead, God is able to say these things about him. God is making these claims. It's not another man talking about the Prince of Tyr. It's not the Prince of Tyr talking about himself. God is able to make these claims about the Prince of Tyr just using normal figures of speech, using normal hyperbole, using normal royal language. Fast forward a couple verses. Son of man, this is God, and he's still talking to the prince of Tyr. Take up lamentation for the king of Tyr and say to him, thus says the Lord, God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So he's the seal of perfection. He's full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Pretend those statements were about God. Pretend they were about God. This verse would show up on all sorts of proof text lists. 
Oh, it's used, you got perfection language. People say, see, God is perfect. There's no change in God. God cannot change for the better or for the worse because he is perfection. God is full of wisdom. That means God is omniscient and perfect in beauty. More perfection language. If this verse was about God, all of these concepts would be turned into metaphysics. But it's not about God. It's about a man, a human being. And some people say that it also applies to Satan, which maybe that's the case, but that's irrelevant to the point that we're talking about right here. Because even if it was about Satan and not the Prince of Tyre, or if it's about both of them, it's still talking about beings who aren't God, who are perfect and full of wisdom. And these types of verses are just the lazy proof texting that the advocates of negative theology would use. Now let's turn to Paul. And Paul talks about foreknowledge and predestination and all these concepts that the Calvinists love. They take these concepts and they say, see, this is foreknowledge. God foreknew before time began that all these things are going to happen. So let's listen to Paul about foreknowledge. In Acts 26.4, he talks about God's knowledge of his life. He says, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, God knows. Foreknown of me from the beginning. See that? It's been foreknown of him from the beginning. Foreknown of me from the beginning, if he would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. But I did it again. I changed the verse. This is not actually about God knowing Paul from the beginning. This is about the Jews knowing Paul from the beginning. And it's the same word that's used. This is the prognosco. This is foreknowledge. When Paul talks about foreknowledge, this is the same word that he uses of people foreknowing things about himself. Here's the actual verse now. Acts 26.4 My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So did these Jews foreknow before anything began, all things from some time immemorial? That's, that's not what this is about. He's saying that these people knew from a long time ago until now how he grew up. They gained knowledge at some point, which they carried with them. And it's not foreknowledge of all events that ever transpire in his life. It's just foreknowledge about very specific things. And this is just knowledge that they gained from observation. Observation in real time as the events transpired. And when people talk about God's foreknowledge, they don't think like that. They think, oh, God foreknew something a thousand, a million years before Chris Fisher was born. God foresaw that he would be making this podcast. No, that's not what it's talking about. Instead, in context, Paul is saying that these people watched me be an observant Jew, and now they can relate to you because they knew it beforehand. This is not new knowledge to them. It's old knowledge that they gained from watching Paul earlier in his life. So now let's turn to a verse that the Calvinists use for this foreknowledge since before time began. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
So it starts out with, for whom he did foreknow. If this foreknowledge is being used in the same sense that the Jews had foreknowledge of Paul, this foreknowledge is God observing these good Christians. These are the people who are foreknown, that God saw that they were the good Christians. Just as the Jews saw Paul was a good, observant Jew. It's the same word. It's the same concept. If this verse was supposed to mean something about God foreknowing people from before time began, individuals, which individuals are going to be saved, which individuals are not going to be saved, the burden of proof is against those who are going to make that claim. Because we have, in context, very similar concepts ascribed to people. And while we're on the subject of Paul and his foreknowledge and predestination, let's talk about how that predestination word is used in extra-biblical references. To my knowledge, pro-horizo, predestination, is used only four times in ancient Greek sources that we have access to. And three of those times, two of them are by Eusebius, one of them is by Clement. And the other one is a pagan author, Plutarch. Let's listen to Plutarch write and, and try to figure out in this sentence which word is pro-arizo, predestination. Let so much suffice for general occasions of freedom of speech. There are particular occasions which our friends themselves furnish that one who really cares for his friends will not neglect but make use of. So Plutarch here is talking about what his friends are going to tell him about friends, the concept of friends. So which word in that sentence was predestined? Let's read it again. Let so much suffice for general occasions of freedom of speech. There are also particular occasions which our friends themselves furnish that one who really cares for his friends will not neglect but make use of. Furnish. Furnish is the word pro-arizo. This is Plutarch and he's using pro-arizo predestination as just generally telling someone something. Pro-arizo is just divulging information and uh, rules how people should act in Plutarch. So let's let's read again Paul on this. Romans 8, 29, 30. For whom he did foreknow, and remember this is not foreknowledge from the beginning of the world. This is foreknowledge of the people who are righteous, the people who are Christians. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. He told these people. He explained to these people how to be conformed to the image of the son. And why did he explain to these people how to be conformed to the image of the son? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There you have it, folks. This is the big chain that the Calvinists are all super concerned about. And they point to this. And this is their proof positive that God knows people from time eternity and picks those people and forces those people to be Christians against their will. And they can never resist God because it's irresistible and everything's predestined. Instead, this verse is about God seeing his righteous people and then telling them how to be conformed to the image of the Son and then calling them to go do that. And then they do that. That's what this verse is about. This is not about fatalism. It's not about forcing people against their will to accept God. This is about God picking his people to conform them into the image of his son. The Plutarch quote is great because the Calvinists will never be able to pick out which word means their favored word for predestination, for fatalism. 
It's not in the Plutarch quote. You don't read any fatalism into that. Instead, it's about disclosing, talking, telling people how things are. This one, this last one, I use all the time. It is hilarious how people try to dance around this verse. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wait, wait, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Calvinists will often quote this and say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever because he's immutable and he can't change. This verse is not about God. It's not about God the Father. This is about Jesus Christ. And if you remember in the Bible, Christ Jesus grew in knowledge, grew in wisdom, grew in favor with God, claimed not to know when the end of the world was going to be, not the day or the hour. And generally, he was a child, he was a baby, and he grew older and older. And recall back to the Spurgeon sermon, any aging means you're not immutable. Any aging, any passage of time means you're not immutable. So for this to be used as a proof text for pure immutability of essence where God cannot change in any respect, that is so far-fetched and so ridiculous that it's, it's just a laughable concept. This is about Jesus Christ. What is the context of this verse? Reading the context, this is all about moral behavior. Listen to your elders. Watch what they do. See what they do. Marriage is honorable. Entertain strangers. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying that if your leaders or church leaders start being evil, that's not Christ-like. Don't follow them if they start doing that. Their doctrine is not going to change. The doctrine, morality, that's going to stay the same. This is not a verse about pure immutability where people can't change or people can't get older or people can't learn new information, new ideas, have new thoughts, have new creative acts. It's not about that. This is about morality. So what about all those other proof texts for immutability? Remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Although he learned new information, he grew older, he grew in wisdom, he grew in favor with God, he did change a lot. So this verse about Jesus never changing, compare those to verses like Malachi, I the Lord, I change not. Compare them to Samuel, the Lord is not a man, that he should repent. What are those verses about in context as well? Are they about essence? Are they about pure immutability where God can't ever learn anything new or can't ever change his mind in any context? Or are these verses just like Hebrews 3, 8, are they contextually based? Are they limited to context? Do you have to read the context to understand? Where do we get the idea that any of these verses at all are about God's pure essence? It's just not in the context. And this verse in Hebrews proves it. If they want to talk immutability, turn here. Tell the Calvinists, say, this verse says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, although he learned new knowledge. You have to understand what the verse is actually talking about. You can't just impose on it all your metaphysics that don't belong on this verse. Of course, the Calvinists in the know, they will start claiming that this verse is about the hypostatic union and how the man part of Jesus changed, whereas the God part of Jesus doesn't change. Is that what this verse is about? Is that what this verse is about? The hypostatic union and the spirit part of God not changing in essence? How does that relate to the context? That's just terrible reading comprehension skills. What does it do to reinforce 
how this is set up and what does it do to the context? If there's nothing in the context about God's essence being changed or being learning new information or, or being outside of time and unchanging, there's nothing in the context about that. Why are we going to presuppose that where it does nothing for us? Isn't it more common sense to assume this is about morality and limited to that and not try to impose these weird ideas about the hypostatic union, which we can't find very good proof text in the Bible for the hypostatic union. It's never explained anywhere. So why on earth are we going to impose that onto Christianity and then assume the author of Hebrews believed it and then assume that all his readers are going to understand it without a thorough explanation of what's going on here? So these are all counterproof texts. Every single one of these are designed to get the reader to start thinking about how language is used. Language isn't absolute. You can't just impose on it what you want to impose on it. Language is fluid. It develops over time in cultures. Hyperbole is often used throughout the Bible in all sorts of contexts, applied to all sorts of people. And you can't just assume your metaphysics, your private interpretation onto the text. We should always start with reading comprehension. What would a normal person, how would they read the text? How would they understand the text? And a good thought experiment, anytime we are reaching a verse and it's about God, just change the subject. Change it to a king and see how the verse reads. That way you're flushing the verse of all your theological presuppositions and you're seeing if it could be taken in a different light rather than what you might have wanted to take the verse in the first place. It's just a reading comprehension skill. You can do it with uh, almost anything. Just to see how someone in another light would take the same verse. We're out of time for today's podcast, but if you have any questions or comments on today's podcast, feel free to throw that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.